anything that I can do for you. Are you going to catch the person that did this? I'm going to try. Welcome back to Quaid in Full, the podcast with all the fox to give about actor Dennis Quaid. I'm Ask a Horseman Girl MC, Sarah D. Bunting, and I'm here with low-flow widower hair, Jeb Lunt. Hello, Jeb. Call me Stingray. <laughs> Stingray! Stingray! That's probably the most fun either of us is going to have talking about Horsemen mm. from 2008 or nine. I could go back and look this up to confirm, but I just don't want to spend any more time on this quote film than I absolutely have to. If we don't have any pod business, I'm going to try to do a plot summary. Uh, I would actually like to do some pod risky business here, if I may. Okay. I'm sure you noticed this, but did you clock the runtime at which Quaid Butt appears? No. Two minutes, 49 seconds. I was I was so pleased for you. <laughs> I mean, I clocked the butt. It'll be in our visual aids, but uh, I did not clock the time. Not even 180 seconds. Just right out the gate. Wow. Yeah. And it it just goes downhill from there. Both it the really film does. and the ass. Um, <clears throat> here we go, I, I suppose. Dennis Quaid's Aiden Breslin is a detective in an unnamed northern city. Spoiler, it's Winnipeg, except when it's Toronto whose snow-blasted landscape matches Breslin's psychological terrain. We know this because director Jonas Eckerland keeps showing it, and Breslin's tiny Crown Vic crossing it. Also, because Breslin has emo widower hair and looks like he's trying to shit out a knot of throwing stars whilst also smoking a lot of cigarettes. Breslin is also struggling to balance the demands of single fatherhood to two sons, Benji from the first season of You, and Howard Hunt's stoner kid from White House Plumbers, and his risible status as Northern City Metro PD's leading expert in forensic odontology, which is how Breslin ends up investigating a tortuously contrived series of murders involving suspension kink, Yi Zhang's deeply off-putting homage to Brittany Murphy in Don't Say a Word. I'll never tell. <laughs> and, of course, the horsemen of the title, specifically the four of the apocalypse. I would go ahead and spoil you on how this plot resolves, but I frankly don't understand how this plot resolves, and I don't think Dave Callahan's script does either. The Four Horsemen conceit is just that. Only scripted serial killers baroque more than a little bigoted, doesn't map onto the few shreds of its own internal logic that it bothered to explain. The writing seems to lurch from one so-called revelation, if you'll forgive the use of that term, mm. to the next without having bothered to make us care about anyone we've met so far, drops Patrick Fugit and our Eric Balfour into the third act for no real reason, then, quote, cracks the case by blaming first Breslin Sr.'s post-traumatic indifferent parenting, and then the internet? The latter in a blatant attempt to set up a sequel. I've got no kick with Paul Dooley getting a paycheck for three and a half minutes of Humanity's 241 exposition about the Seven Seals, especially since he's one of three people in Horseman who's cast correctly, but his ludicrously monikered Father White Leather has no idea what he's talking about, and in the end, neither do I. Jeb, any clarifications that it's possible for you to make here? 
No, I don't think so. I'm glad that you found uh, his exegesis of Revelation just as baffling as I did. But uh, yeah, uh, seven for teens is not good and it's confused. And like two thirds of the way through, we get a little bit of, uh, well, he doesn't count as a horseman. So we have to do another horseman, except we don't. So like even the thing that, you know, the title actually reflects is something that they didn't really seem to want to follow through on. And that right. is just that's the one thing you had to stick. I mean, you put it in the title. That's your main conceit. I mean, if you named the movie Basketball and like two thirds of the way through, you started introducing bats. I, I think uh, I, that would probably be analogous to what's going on here. Yeah, I just we've watched some um, pretty ripe garbage in our travels on this podcast, but this one is uniquely bad, I think. I just kept thinking about, I don't know if you watched Project Greenlight? No, I didn't. Okay. The aspiring filmmakers during the sort of audition process used to get prompts. And it was like a series of lines, basically, and then whatever you ended up doing with it, then you turn in that reel as a short, and then they would okay. choose based on that. Um, but everybody got the same prompts. Mm -hmm. Horseman is like a Costco palette of different prompts and then it's like they just stapled all of them together somehow so you have characters coming in from like left field quickly bringing us up to speed on their trauma and then exiting the narrative and supposedly answering or like providing a piece of this murderous puzzle and yet not like they don't really bother analyzing anyone's motives because the motives don't matter because nothing maps onto the horseman conceit correctly. And then at the end, we're supposed to think like, oh, you know, they're watching us and, but who's them? And why aren't they watching anymore at the so-called happy ending? Mm -hmm. Not, not that kind, unfortunately, but that would have made as much sense as, as anything else. I mean, this is just a real baffler. Like, I don't, I don't know what happened. No, me neither. I don't know how this got pitched. And then this is what happened in the end. Was no one watching? It's just very, it's just very odd to me. Yeah, it, it really does feel like they just filmed the first draft or the first draft after they were given notes and they just took a paragraph of whatever the notes were and shoved it into like whatever part of the plot had the space for it. Yeah. Like you said, like Patrick Fugic and Eric Balfour showing up, you know, like three quarters of the way through and then, you know, winding up having essentially no impact on anything that's happening. I mean, we didn't need those characters at all. It didn't progress anything. It didn't advance anything. Yeah. It's just sort of like, well, shit, we needed seven more minutes. Yeah. I mean, what was the purpose of it? It was to generate a living victim who had been attacked with the same mysterious instrument yeah. as the first victim. Like, why give anyone that many lines? <laughs> I, do, I just don't understand it. And the extreme bigotry that Eric Balfour's character is obliged to direct at Patrick Fugitz is like, what? Why is that here? Mm -hmm. Why are we um, setting up this straw man about anti-queer kink shaming? What does this have to do with the central plot? 
And then how does it tie into the Breslin family, which apparently is compromised beyond what anyone realized? And why is the resolution to that a a father-son confrontation at the end that states motives that we, we see are not correct? Right. By which I mean that the son is like, you would know that I was all fucked up if you ever went in my room. Like we we saw him in his room at the beginning. Did anyone go back and watch any of this movie? I thought that was the basement. Are you thinking about the time when uh, Quaid comes home and tucks them in after he's been out late on a crime scene? Yeah. I thought that was like the basement rec room. Like oh, they're, they're like okay. curled up in front of the TV. For me, like that, what was baffling and undermining about that scene was the fact that the the you know the the concluding scene was that it's actually moving and caring and undermines the entire artifice he's trying to create like if you were watching that within the logic of the movie the people watching that are all bloodthirsty internet psychopaths mm-hmm. but if you were watching it and you're willing to be persuaded by the drama or the extremity of the tableau the fact that you uh, presumably as the the viewer as part of this like whacked secret society would know that Dennis Quaid is being targeted uh, and tormented deliberately. And yet like the, you know, forgiveness and love that comes from him, you know, naturally and immediately would be, I think, challenging to your thesis that hell is here on earth. So why did it end that way? Right. If the whole idea is to bring Breslin to the crime scene because he is the forensic odontology expert, LOL, then there's a million and one ways to do that that don't involve the Book of Revelation. Yeah. So I I just don't... Like, this was going not just around the block, but into a different zip code and back again to get to the house next door. And I think the father-son, sort of the familial section of this movie is the story Mm -hmm. but i guess it wasn't sold on that basis so we have to sit through a lot of just really outre for the sake of it imagery and like i said baroque only in the movies serial killer structuring an organization that isn't i mean never mind credible it's just not that interesting because it seems to have been assembled from other movies that also weren't very good. We're going to skip over the contemporary reviews section because there weren't any. There was like a two paragraph variety review from the festival circuit. And then I think this was just released like at three in the morning in two cities. (laughs) No one else reviewed it. No one. It was a leap day release. Awful. I had no idea that this existed. When I saw the name in the, you know, here's what we're doing coming up, I tried to think of like, well, what the, what could this possibly be? Like, what's interesting to me is I'd never once thought it's the Four Horsemen, I think, because no, my brain neither. just rejected something that hokey. Yeah. I was like, well, this is going to be about like Vikings or something. Oh, I thought it was going to be some like proto Yellowstone thing that they tried to get to go because, you know, it's got a ranch of Montana. Why not? Yeah. I, I wish. The old writers. Yeah. <laughs> short writers i just i mean uh, i have a clip that 
lets you know what you're really dealing with, at least in the first half of the movie. I think it's worth pointing out that after this scene, or this scene concludes with uh, Zi Zhang's character taking a fetus that's in a Ziploc bag out of her pocket and showing it to Breslin, because I guess we're just doing that in a park in Winnipeg. It's the full look at this photograph kind of like way of holding it out too. Yeah. Yeah. Like uh, I just finished watching Perry Mason on HBO and the way that they show photographs to the jury in the early 30s. It was that, except this blob of Play-Doh suspended in Kool-Aid that she took out of her adopted mother before hanging her from a rig. Anyway, here's clip two. I wanted her to take me with her so bad. I couldn't tell her, but she did anyway. I came here to the States. They were my parents, and I was their daughter. It was just like I was dreamed of me. The next year, Teresa was born. Doctor said it was a miracle. That must have been hard. Why do people do the things they do? I don't know. Hmm. Right. In addition to being magnetic poetry dialogue, again, from the traumatized detective thriller box, fine. But then she immediately has this completely out there heel turn and you're still only a third of the way through the movie and i don't understand what it's trying to say about her character or characters like her i don't think zhang was directed at all no or her direction was just like no hornier yeah like for the whole of it yeah And every scene they have together, she's just doing this like creepy dolly thing that's off-putting, but not in the way the movie wants it to be off-putting. It's just bad. This is not a bad actor. She's just wrong for this. And so was he. We'll get into that in a second. But it's all scenes like that. Monologues in search of a Columbus, Ohio acting class. I mean, and then occasionally there's a visual cliche like... Dennis Quaid planting his face in some cold water and you get like sync POV cam. Yeah. Of course, he's a guy who has a speed bag that he takes frustrate or not a speed bag, a heavy bag that he takes frustrations out on and you smash cut from him punching a wall in frustration to him punching that. Mm -hmm. It's just a lot of ideas that seemed to go together, but weren't really concatenated in any way except that they're all in this movie together if that makes any sense yeah it does can i just hate on this movie for a little bit like i have some random notes i just want to be like what the fuck about is that all right sure yes obviously so like early on we get this dialogue between him and fellow detective stingray come and see it was uh written on four trees around the pond North, south, east, and west. Any idea what it means? <sighs> means they brought a compass. Okay. I mean, look, part of this that like is making this whole conceit work is that there's no other person in the department but these two working on this. And like, 
I don't know if you've met cops, but like when they're done, like beating up minorities and like shaking down sex workers for a free blowjob, they go to church on Sunday. Like a mm -hmm. lot of them do. There's going to be somebody in this department because, again, we're like hanging people from hooks and giving them non-consensual abortions. Like there'd probably be some other people working on it. But then just to sort of underline like how silly it is that they don't recognize the four horsemen thing. There's one interlude where he goes home and that's when the kids are asleep down in the basement rec room. And the next scene is he's in church and you're like, come on. Like, even if he's the atheistist atheist, he's heard of the four horsemen. He's probably heard the come and see quote. Like there's a much better movie called come and see. He might've seen it. Anyway, my next one, <laughs> like uh, just a quote here from Stingray when they're talking about uh, the hanging from the hooks thing. Suspension is a subculture based on ancient rituals found in several religions. It's the next step of evolution from tattoos and piercings. Is it? Yeah. Uh, this was a really dated and out of its own time, knee jerk, conservative response to tattoos and piercings and ear stretching and whatever else like this portrayal read early 90s law and order right first act where briscoe will make a joke about needing something like a hole in the head and then they cut to the credits like when are we yeah like their version of the internet is very much like and what it's doing to kids is very much like svu it's like people will put any private detail on face space they don't even care they're monitoring themselves <laughs> and they complain about the government you're like, okay, thanks, iced tea and yeah. munch. Don't forget that he asked the tech guy, if I save this hard drive in time, can you get back to that website? Like, that's not how the web works. It's a web, dumbass. No wonder you can't crack this case. You were dropped on your head. Also, we have a computer chip. Can we find the home computer from it? No. <laughs> but then they do. Of course. And there was a Bible verse written on it. Do they ever like tell you what the Bible verse says? No, it's Exodus and they don't say anything about it. I mean, was that supposed to be the audience's safe word? Like once you see the word Exodus, do what it says. <laughs> leave the theater, yeah, get a leave. refund. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Brutal. Sorry. What's your next thing? They're talking to uh, the guy who knows the machine from 8mm or whatever and who's assembled these hanging cabinets. And he says, like, I've been cooperating with you cops. Uh, and here's his complaint. Bro, it's fucking midnight and I'm still at work helping you out when I want to be at home catching a Jack the Belladonna. And like, okay, Belladonna was a porn star and contemporaneous with this, but like, catching a Jack interesting <laughs> never yeah. heard that one before Thanks. no me neither and um like fetch it's not gonna happen <laughs> yeah like i have myriad complaints and questions but what's the point like it just keeps bringing things up throwing them at the wall they don't stick and then nobody cleans it up like this is a pretty heavyweight cast they've got Peter Stormare as initially, it seems like the bereft husband, but it turns out that there was a, you know, Woody Allen Sunni situation happening mm -hmm. with the Zhang character. And it's like, oh, well, you know, he had motive, I guess, except he didn't really, but he's going to jail for this. And we, you know, we found the Polaroids, you're going to jail. Right. And then that's the end of his storyline. 
I just don't understand why you cast that guy and do this with him and then you just throw it overboard. But that's the whole movie. Thoughts come up, they're expressed, they leave, there's no follow-up, there's no planting seeds, there's no foreshadowing. It's just a kind of string of scenes that seem to go together because you've seen them in a row, but they don't. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work at all, with one or two exceptions, which we'll get to in the next section, but let's just rate this trash pile, and uh, then we can talk about the quaidosity. Sure. One and a half. Yeah, I was like, maybe a two, just because like, I thought there were certain performances I thought were better than they needed to be for this, mm -hmm. and there were certain scenes periodically where i was like well that's arresting and disturbing i'll give them credit for fucking me up slightly more but as i'm talking about it, i'm like i don't know why i went that high so yeah i'll, I'll take the 1.5 as well i like i can't even give them a whole number can't can't go past one all yeah. the way i can't do it i agree there are a couple of performances that are better than they have to be for this um including lou taylor pucci as alex the son this is a you know, this is five or six different roles and motivations that were thrown in a blender, and he has to he has to do all of them sometimes at the same time. And he's mm -hmm. pretty good. He's like he's charismatic, and he does a lot with these scenes that are written in a very tired, trite manner about the child who is hoping that his depressed detective father is actually going to come through with some family time and lets himself hope and then is a little annoyed with himself for falling for it again, I guess, or getting yeah. his hopes up. There's there's no need for Poochie to be doing this much with this two-dimensional character whose real motivations are never even hinted at, and then he has to sell this whole like literal Rube Goldberg contraption thing at the end. And he's really good without being too much. He's not overacting. He's just doing more than this movie deserves. I don't know if you agree. He's where like 1.25 of my 1.5 came from, honestly. Yeah. I mean, he's he's at least half of my rating, too. I, I think I remember him in an old criminal intent where he played like an obnoxious um, uh, compulsive gambler. Right. And I thought he was a little bit big in that. And then so in seeing him in this, I thought, well, I don't know how this is going to go. And yeah, I mean, like the, the coiled tension of my dad is Lucy and he keeps making me kick the football. All right. I, I can't help it because I'm his kid and I can't help but, you know, love him. I'm going to do it. Ah, fuck. You know, and that simmering tension of disappointment going into like simmering malevolent rage is not the easiest thing to do, but it, the choice that he made made that transition seem, as much as it possibly could with this script, seem like something he naturally did. I don't know why he did it, but I believe the process in him as an actor and and in, in embodying that character. So, you know, well done, Mr. Pucci. Yeah. In fact, at every moment in this, this movie, I was pretty much asking myself, where's Pucci? I mean, there's so much poochying <laughs> in this script that it's it is really perfect actually that they cast Poochie and then sent him back to his home planet. 
Um, Quaid. <laughs> he did ascend at the end. <laughs> yes. Sorry. <laughs> Quaid is both good at times, but also completely miscast at other times. Like, I have a clip, but I'm interested to hear your theory on why, as a cop, I don't quite buy it. I know Remy McSwain was a cop, but there's something there's something about this like downbeat, depressed expert detective that mm-hmm. it, it just doesn't quite work. And it's not that I don't buy him as a law enforcement character generally, but I think this burnt out cynical type in like a seven style story does not work for me. I'm not sure why. I'm going to play a clip and then we can discuss. Checked in Monday afternoon with a single suitcase. Told registration be staying indefinitely. Nobody lives in a hotel unless they're homeless or they're hiding from somebody. Now, he knew that they were coming for him next. And the only person who knew how he knew that is in a vinyl bag. Excuse me. Now the only person with a motive is in a vinyl bag. Every lead we had is in a vinyl bag. Yeah, that one's a stinker. The beginning of that clip was a super over-directed close-up of him firing up another cancer stick. I just don't buy it. And I'm not sure why. What do you think? Overall, I think he's better than average in this. Um, and we'll get to that. But like the moment that made me go, nope you're doing it wrong was the second interrogation not the one with uh with g jang's character not the one where she gets on her knees and puts her hands on his thighs and you're like oh okay so the psychopathic tension here is you're a killer and you're putting yourself in position to suggest blowing him right like this is real kind of like tension 101 stuff for me no thanks but the one before that where he's saying we're gonna find these people and he slams on the table that's between them and then she says something like no you won't and then he just like flings himself back in the chair and (laughs) slouches completely defeated and it's like dennis quaid like as an actor seems to have like a conspicuous lack of engagement with his own body from the neck down and you know just that the the hand on the back of the hip the slouching perennially when when he's playing characters that you would expect to have a certain bearing that's informed by the task that they're performing right then yeah and in this case he's basically standing up and yelling and then going like no i lost whatever and like you can't do that in an interrogation and you can't be a director of like a you know two guys are in the box one's a cop one's a suspect seen having seen any of it or having any passing familiarity with policing and go that's okay yeah just let the suspect know you've given up like unless it's part of a gambit that that you know comes around later like you're lulling them into a false sense of security but there's none of that it's just such a strange acting choice for okay you know you're a cop right <laughs> like, right you what are, what are you doing here? You know what the job is, right? And no, he doesn't. I am tempted to give him a pass on that just because the script seems never to have watched a procedural before either. Yeah. Like, where's her lawyer? Why is right. this a, you know, who hosed down a set from Fight Club and put bars in it? Why are Why was no one on hand to show Dennis Quaid how to clear a room? in the way that Hollywood traditionally does it. 
I mean, he's holding his gun at the end like it's a bag full of bees with a hole in it. I I don't <laughs> understand how that happens. It's a, well, I mean, finding comparisons for what is to you know to what is happening on screen is like kind of the only fun available in this movie. <laughs> I'm just, like I'm just imagining the 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 department armory right? going down there and like unlocking the cabinet. There's a bunch of shotguns. There's some non lethal rounds there. There are pistols. There's a bag of bees with a hole in it. Yeah. He's like, well, I'll take the bees. But he heard a lot of buzz about this weapon. He has this football coach posture that he continues to use even when it's mm. not appropriate. Like this. This detective would be, this character would be slumpy and kind of have a short fuse and he does that okay, but there is a, like you said, there's a bearing to law enforcement that is not, he he picks a certain authoritative bearing that's much more assistant high school football coach than it is general secret service agent, like whatever he's doing, Mm -hmm. it doesn't work. And you know, bees, not the blocking you want. But I think the director just is not. The director does videos, like high profile videos, but videos. And I think there, there is a huge difference, especially in a so-called plot driven thriller between how you block and set up scenes in a video where there's some you know, dialogue and this, that it really shows that this is a video director, but it also shows that perhaps Dennis Quaid is not all that directable by this point in his career, because who, why are you holding the gun like that? Like it's a plunger. It's weird. Yeah. It's a pretty movie. And like, there are definitely bits where you can just freeze frame it. And you're like, that is a nice tableau, like good eye, my man well directed Mm -hmm. there but like as soon as it gets into dialogue portions you still have this sort of like broadness in the physicality and maybe maybe that's it like maybe he was responding to the director saying like i needed to be more expressionistic and more you know like almost like commedia dell'arte or something so that people know because he's expecting like just music to be drowning it out we're all gonna have to piece together what happened yes that's exactly it well put i don't think that it's dennis quaid's fault that in the police parts he's not good because in the father-son parts he's pretty good he's a lot better you do see the grin at least once in that part of the story and the ending i mean this clip that i cut it starts out with quaid being quite affecting and sort of getting to the heart of what is passing between the father and the son in this scene. And then it just goes completely off the rails with a bunch of not uncredible, but still unfortunately funny grunting. And he's like the champs at the beginning of 2001, like, because he's handcuffed to a theater seat. It's a whole thing. Anyway, here's the clip. I told you it would be different. It could still be different. Alex. 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 No! No! Alex! 
this is how my dog sounds when he gets a piece of French bread on the street and doesn't want to drop it. I mean, it, like, it felt really real and sincere, and I respect Quaid's commitment. But then the soaring strings that are like, just a reminder that this is both grotesque and touching. Like, calm down, score. I, uh, like, this is the problem with this movie in a nutshell, this clip in my opinion, that there is a story here that these two actors could effectively serve. But it's in the middle of this procedural that has not been thought through at all. The first set of studio notes was the last time the studio thought about this fucker. And it's just not... uh, This director is not a good match for this material. And Dennis Quaid is a good match for one third of this role. So that's what we heard. I think I think this could have been an interesting minor picture if they had put the family in the foreground, but they didn't. So Yeah, I, I did not know whether it was parent brain hormones at work at the end of the uh of the film because like I did like I started choking up because it's a dad saying he loves his son and you know I'm like and and I just didn't know like okay am I just uniquely susceptible to that now but yeah no it's not parental hormones it was um that he's like it could be different yeah it could still be different like that was good that was just good that he made that universal and then it immediately stepped on its own dick so yeah, I don't know. Maybe this maybe this is controversial. I don't know. I thought like, you know, apart from the the poor physical choices and like the schlockiness of parts of the plot or like one of the four <laughs> plots in this. I thought uh-huh. he did a good job as an empathetic, although, you know, he's he's beaten down, but he's still displaying some empathy for who he thinks is the victim at the beginning. He's also physically awkward around her. He doesn't know how to be paternal without transgressing some boundaries i thought those choices were good i thought all of the stuff that he he was doing with his sons was good i thought he stuck the ending i mean the rest is dog shit but like that was enough for me to go six just one above down the middle mediocre because i thought you know like poor dennis right like this movie is like just got instantly memory hold but he was actually working in a way the script didn't deserve but he was working yeah i at least have to grade on a curve of his miscasting is not his fault. This garbage script mm. is not his fault. And there are things that he just can't do that he's asked to do and tries to do. But there are things he's asked to do that he really does. And I think it, that last scene, he really left it all on the field. So I went with a six and a half. He's in most of the movie. He does grin once. You see his ass, sort of. <laughs> Um, (laughs) frame by framing reveals he wasn't asked to do quady enough things for me to go any higher but Mm -hmm. he made the best that he could out of a bad job he shouldn't have been hired for so six and a half i don't think it's controversial to go higher and um you know thanks for visiting our planet poochie because if this were the poochie (laughs) files you'd get a nine this was this was really good work. I can't believe I gave a shit even a little. Yeah. Next time on Quaid in Full, who lives in a pineapple under the sea pack? Dan Bob Quaid Pants. 
In the meantime, geolocate our show notes by, you know, scrolling down. And follow the podcast on Twitter at QuaidInFullPod. You can get even more content at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash QuaidInFull. Quaid and Full is hosted by Sarah D. Bunting and Jeb Lund and edited by Jeb Lund. And if we hooked you with today's episode, that quote joke, we'll probably put paid to that. But anyway, we'd love for you to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. <laughs>